0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Atlas Information Live. We are your host, Atlas Alex. and uh, today we're going to do uh, somewhat of a departure, but not not too far off uh, what uh, we have talked about in the past uh, on our channel because uh, yesterday we went to go see killers of the Flower Moon. That's Martin Scorsese's latest uh, film starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Robert De Niro, and Lily, Lily Gladstone. We can wrap our tongue around those names. And uh, we've done live streams in the past about film, because film is a uh, obviously a very popular form of entertainment, but it's also a modern contemporary vehicle for mythology old and new and today we are going to dedicate our talk to the notion of epic filmmaking the origin of the epic and whether or not epic filmmaking is dead as we know it because certainly our experience last night watching killers of of the flower moon, we ended up saying killers of the flower moon or killer of the epic film. And um, the implications of this are far reaching, and cut very deep indeed, when we uh, when we get into it. Um, But before we do get into the whole epic uh, and start unpacking the nature of what it means to be epic what does that actually mean and what constitutes epic art whether it's an epic novel or an epic mythology an epic play or indeed an epic film what makes something epic so we will get into that but um before we do we might as well start off with uh, uh, just greeting everybody and uh, well uh, thanking you for uh, joining us today and uh, also to share with you the link if you feel like um, jumping in and sharing your thoughts um, perhaps you've also seen the film or if you haven't um, perhaps you'll like to uh, contribute to the discussion around classical epic films the films that we all know to be epic, and we mentioned that a little bit in the uh, description to today's talk. But uh, let's begin, and, and why it's important, why this matters. Why, why it matters that in 2023, there were no less than two attempts at telling epic stories, uh, or... Two attempts at making epic films. One of them was Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. And the second is Killers of, a, of the Flower Moon. There is a third epic film or attempt at an epic film coming next month. And that's Ridley Scott's Napoleon, starring Joaquin Phoenix. Now, Ridley Scott has a very good track record. At making epic films after all he directed gladiator and kingdom of heaven blade runner legend so in many ways he's he's a he's a legendary filmmaker in that very often his films he shoots f- for those big epic sweeping narratives um and often raises the big questions for us through those those epic narratives so we will see if Ridley Scott's Napoleon lives up to the uh, the banner of his previous work and uh, whether or not he delivers a truly epic recounting of Napoleon's life or Napoleon's conquests uh, Napoleon's reign his rule and the impact that he had not just on France but the world because when we think of epic, that's really what the word comes down to. It is the, the large-scale sweeping impact, whether it's the epic nature of the story being told and the epic nature in which that story is told, so the, the means by which that story is told. So the filmmaking itself takes on this grandiose perspective to match, to meet the epic story, the epic characters, the larger-than-life personas, uh, the movers and shakers that were involved in these turning points of history or turning points of mythology. In the case of, let's say, Lord of the Rings, and which is you know, unquestionably one of the greatest epics ever written. And it's a, it's a fantasy. Tolkien stated he wanted to write a mythology for, for England. And um, so when we think of epics, we think of those sweeping, grandiose stories, narratives, personas, um, circumstances, and, and situations and that one of the aspects of the epic is that it transcends time and space it transcends cultures it transcends the idiosyncrasies of particular eras or moments they're timeless they're so enormous in their scale and scope that they they burst free of the corporeal limitations which one might otherwise place on the story to say that that story is only relevant to the time and place and people to which it happened. Epics break down those barriers. those Those walls are just blown apart by the sheer enormity of the narrative and the telling of the narrative. Such that generations will be watching and marveling and being swept away by the enormity, the the colossal truths, the universal, timeless, universal truths of the human condition. And these larger-than-life characters playing out these these scenarios And, and either rising to the challenge. Or failing and falling, because of the cha- in the face of great challenge, which we you know we get to the epic tragedies, for example, of Oedipus and Macbeth and and the Greek tragedies, the Shakespearean tragedies, they're epic. So why would we say that Killers of the Flower Moon uh, is not epic? And what's worse, it's killing the epic. Well, this is the IMDb page uh, for the film. And that's the uh, one of the many film posters. And that's, of course, we're not going to play you the trailer because we don't want to get demonetized and we don't want to get struck by YouTube. So you can go and watch the trailer if you haven't already seen it. But the reason why we brought up this page, number one, because of the, in order so that we could get you know uh references to all the actors names and you know all the cast and and so on that's all the information that's here for us because we're so terrible with names but um oh look it's auto playing now well we didn't want it to do that how do we get it to stop how do we get it to stop stop go back oh no what if we reload the page maybe we can there we go we can reload the page okay so um the reason why we wanted to show you this is because uh, that image of Leonardo DiCaprio, he's the essentially the protagonist of the film. We see the story of Killers of the Flower Moon through his eyes, through his experience. And this is basically, as you know, Leonardo DiCaprio's uh, one facial expression uh, for anything other than happiness. If he's not laughing or smiling, he's doing this most of the time. He's he's in this film anyway, this is what he's doing. But in most other films, from Gangs of New York to everything else you've seen him in, when he's when he's serious, he's always got that furled brown. He's basically has what uh what people um refer to as resting bitch face. Right? They some people will use that as an insult uh towards women. Well, we're using it here to describe Leonardo DiCaprio's uh, performances. And for the most part, you know, we can handle this for two hours, two and a half hours, right? But Killers of the Flower Moon is three and a half hours long. And this is the first sign that the filmmakers, Scorsese and DiCaprio, because DiCaprio is an executive producer on the film, this is the first red flag that the filmmakers were desperate for this film to be an epic. There's no other there's no other way to rationalize or justify a three and a half hour runtime. That's Lawrence of Arabia, runtime, right? That's Return of the King levels length of, of, of length of film. So typically, when you're Thinking when you're looking at a three and a half hour film, you're talking about some of the greatest epics ever made: Gone with the Wind and Doctor Zhivago, and and again Lawrence of Arabia or Zulu or or you know some of the other or Gandhi, right? Richard At Sir Richard Attenborough's Gandhi. So we have to ask ourselves, okay, so what is the epic tale being told in Killers of the Flower Moon? It's a story of the Osage Indians in the early part of the twentieth century when this this band of uh, of Native North Americans they struck gold uh, sorry, they struck oil they they struck black gold. they struck oil on their reservation. and this is a true this is a it's based on a true story and The Osage uh, land overnight was completely inundated by the oil companies and a whole host of American whites, opportunists, business people, merchants, the oil companies themselves, bankers, accountants, lawyers, you name it, they were like, Flies on cow dung. And there was a, depending on how you perceive the way in which the American dream manifested itself in Fairfax. Uh, So we're trying to remember where the... um, It's Oklahoma, Fairfax, Oklahoma. So that's where the Osage Nation land was. And depending on how you perceive how the American dream manifested there, you know the 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 get rich quick American dream, right? That that American dream, where uh, a pauper can become a prince from the sweat of his own brow, or his ingenuity, or his his luck. Or His cleverness, his perhaps even deviousness, right? and and so on. So <clears throat> okay, so here's what. We can say, and what we can do. Okay. So that's it. That's all we can do. Okay. 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 Mm. Mm. Oh. Mm-hmm. 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 So Stuart Wilson says, "Aloha, haven't seen this particular film. I did watch Kingdom of Heaven though." So again, uh Ridley Scott is no stranger to the uh uh to the epic and doing an excellent job of the epic. But uh you're not missing much in terms of uh Killers of the Flower Moon because Killers of the Flower Moon is not epic. It's trying to be epic, but it's not epic. The Osage uh County uh uh, story is is an interesting one, and it ha- it's multifaceted, and the details of it come down to some come down to the, uh, the 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 white man, the white opportunists' exploitation of the Osage and their newfound wealth, because when the Osage Nation discovered oil under their land, uh, they overnight they became the wealthiest people per capita on earth. The equivalent, if you want to um, think about it, the equivalent would be when the Saudis discovered oil under Saudi Arabia. And all the tribes of the uh, Saudi Arabians, overnight they became the wealthiest people on earth per capita. Because the ocean of oil. Under their, under their land. Well, much the same could be said for the Osage Nation there in Oklahoma. And the oil companies came and they built their wells and those wells uh, stretched for as far as the eye could see and Scorsese actually has a shot uh, with showing that, showing a, a, a like a just... Uh, like typical oil fields in the in the United States just just oil wells um shoulder to shoulder stretching as far as the eye could see right trying to to create this epic shot um, um I don't think we got. I don't think we can. Um, we don't see a. Uh, we don't see that uh, the image anywhere. This is the closest uh, we can find here in a Google image search to the. Uh, here. No, no no don't yeah, okay. So this is the shot. See it's showing the uh the oil coming out of the ground, and here's the Osage, and there's the town. Um everybody has cars. All the Osage are uh dressing up, and uh there they are in the Catholic Church. Um This is just a UK. This is a U.K. featurette. This uh, this little video. Again, we're not going to play the the sound to this video because we don't want to get flagged for by YouTube. Um, and then get us get a strike. So here's that shot we were referring to. Here, Let's see if we can make that bigger. Okay, you can probably see that much better now. You see all the. Uh, the oil wells stretching as far as the eye can see so they're trying to create this grandiose epic scale to this uh to this story but uh the reality is is that the story is very intimate it's very small it's about mostly about these two individuals um, actually these three individuals. We have Leonardo DiCaprio and his uncle, Robert De Niro, and Leonardo DiCaprio's wife, Molly, and Molly's sisters, and Molly's mother. Because uh, DiCaprio's uncle, that's Hale, um, Robert De Niro's character, he wants access to Molly and her family's Heads, heads' rights, which is the rights to the wellheads. in other words, their oil, their, their family fortune. And in order to get it, he needs his nephew, Leonardo DiCaprio, to marry into the family. And uh, once DiCaprio does that, Molly's family suddenly starts suffering deaths in the family, strange illnesses and deaths in the family. Her, her mother's her mother dies, her sisters start to die, and they're essentially not the only ones, not the only Osage who uh start to become systematically hunted and murdered. And of course, it's all for their oil, their their heads rights, all of their 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 oil, their fortune, that they're being killed off slowly. And um because of this, the uh, Mali goes to um washington d c and begs the Attorney general for assistance well they not the attorney general the Indians affairs um, they don't have ministers in the states they have but they have representatives so the the representative in charge of native affairs and um and the the book that the film is based on is also called Killers of the Flower Moon. And here it says, the Osage murders and the birth of the FBI by David Grant. because this is in the time of J. Edgar Hoover and the establishment of the FBI and the Osage murders. Were one of the first, if not first, real breakthrough case for the Federal Bureau of Investigations. And Scorsese's movie uh, addresses this to, on a kind of superficial level, near the end of the film, where a bunch of FBI agents descend upon the town of Fairfax, Oklahoma, and they begin their investigation and questioning and so on and so forth. But uh, Scorsese and DiCaprio choose not to focus on too much on that aspect of the story, rather, they focus on the exploitation and the suffering of the Osage themselves. They that for them is the uh, the focus. There's a Uh, a political-slash-cultural-slash-racial focus, agenda, if you will, to their film. That's the book cover, by the way. Um, And there's no avoiding it. It's not... The film is not... Browbeating the audience by any stretch of the imagination. It's not woke in the strictest sense, but the desperation on the part of DiCaprio and De Niro in their performances comes across as artists, actors, who are desperate to try to do justice to the what they see as the epic failings of a young united states and the epic suffering of its first nations people and it seems to us at least that uh dicaprio especially seemed to be terrified of the woke community cancelling him and cancelling his movie as not paying homage of not doing enough to shed light on the plight of the native american and that somehow this story and the telling of this story was to be an epic tale encapsulating and capturing the spirit of the great suffering and genocide of the and exploitation of the native american peoples and it seemed to us at least that Scorsese, and De Niro, and DiCaprio, that they were desperate to raise Killers of the Flower Moon to the level of epic, the level of an epic film that does justice to the epic suffering and epic exploitation and genocide of the native peoples of North America by the colonizing whites. But they failed to do so, because the story itself does not rise to that level. The story itself is bogged down in the idiosyncrasies of the time and place in which the story uh, was, took place. And what we were reminded of when we were watching the film was Steven Spielberg's Schindler's List. Now, Spielberg, once Spielberg became the blockbuster filmmaking king of Hollywood, he made Jaws followed by Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and E.T., all of which were phenomenal boss-office smash hits. Spielberg, being of Jewish heritage himself, was approached by countless... Investors, producers, executive producers, studios, um, and and indeed, uh, uh, writers with treatments and scripts and novels and um, documentaries. Everyone was courting Steven Spielberg. Everybody wanted Steven Spielberg to make their Holocaust film. They said, finally. Here's a nice Jewish kid, who has real filmmaking talent, and a penchant for making popular blockbuster films. Uh, Let's, you know, let's let's recruit him to make a movie about the Holocaust. And Spielberg famously uh, told them all that he wasn't interested. He wasn't interested in their dark brooding, um, you know, horrific, nightmarish, uh, dramatic recounting of hell on earth. Spielberg famously said that he wanted to find the light in the darkness. He wanted to tell a story of human triumph of love conquering all even in the middle of you know what what uh people consider to be one of the worst genocides in history one of the most evil uh, times in history Um, an event of truly epic proportions and truly epic Uh, in its scale and scope of darkness, of evil. And Spielberg said, I don't want to wallow in all of that. Because he knew intuitively as an artist and as a filmmaker that all epics must raise us up into the light The triumph of the whole of the human spirit, the hero overcoming the great odds, the immovable objects, the unbeatable foes via integrity, via virtue, via courage, and via tremendous sacrifice. All of these attributes. Of the triumphant hero as the hero rises up on wings of the human spirit what the christians call the holy spirit and we as the audience in true epics are swept up in that story are swept up in that process and we are taken on that revolution of the alm of life, on that hero's journey of the protagonist. And we descend into hell with the protagonist. And we experience a catharsis together with the protagonist as he faces the great evil, all representative of the darkness within himself he needs to overcome, and that we need to overcome. And so in that cathartic process of experiencing timeless universal truths playing out in this epic tale of these sweeping geography and history or fantasy or mythology whatever the case may be but we are but the true epic raises us up on those wings of the human spirit of the holy spirit up to the very summit of mount olympus as though we rode up there on the back of pegasus And from that perspective, that perspective of Olympus, we have this this new outlook, this capacity to see from a superior vantage point. And epics have the potential to in their telling and in their execution, and their subject matter, and when it all comes together, they have the capacity to open our hearts and open our minds, and indeed open our eyes, so that we have the eyes to hear and the the the, the eyes to see and the ears to hear those timeless, universal truths that are embedded and embodied. In these epic stories these epic films which capture the essence of those truths in every aspect of their filmmaking in every aspect of the cinematic spectacle from writing and dialogue to uh, performances to direction to cinematography to the musical score it all comes together in this in this grandiose production and when you experience that you know that you are in the presence of greatness you know that the the work was touched by the hand of god you also know when you see a film which is just trying too hard The Killers of the Flower Moon is bleak. It's dark. There is no redemption arc for any of the characters, best as we can tell. Certainly not for Leonardo DiCaprio's character or Robert De Niro's character. There's no redemption arc there. There's barely any recognition of wrongdoing. There's no aha moment. There's no the character seeing the light. So there's no cathartic moment in the film it's not to say that there's no resolution after all we mentioned how the fbi descends on the on the town so there is a resolution of sorts to the plot but there's no resolution that we can directly empathize with sympathize with or that can produce the cathartic experience within us There's no ray of light, there's no ray of hope emanating from amid the darkness. There are no wings of the Spirit to carry us up on high and give us some new perspective or some new outlook. What we have are overbearing, forced performances by the two main male stars, DiCaprio and De Niro, who are desperate to win an oscar for this film it seems they're desperate for this for their performance to be be seen as epic but they just come across as 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 labored and particularly dicaprio's perma bitch face which again you can handle it for two hours two and a half hours maybe while watching aviator or uh or um a film like um Wow, uh, what's it called? The uh, the one about um, yeah, Jay Edgar, the one about Jay Edgar Hoover. Uh, DiCaprio plays Jay Edgar in that one, and that's another film where he's constantly the entire film. It seems like he's he's angry. He's just got his angry face on. Um, and like us, like you know, we say you can maybe handle that for two two and a half hours, but three and a half hours is too much. It's just too much. And it's particularly this character that's not very bright, uh, uh, earnest. Uh, the character that uh, DiCaprio is playing. He's pretty dull. He's not very bright. He's not at all likable, and he's not at all charming. There's very little for the audience to connect with. And so there's there's very little catharsis that we can experience. And De Niro's character is even less likable. And this is all coming from, you know you can say like a narrative perspective or filmmaking perspective like uh, a review perspective, but really what we're talking about here is a very bleak, dark, slice-of-life art house film, which is more of a docudrama that is pretending to be a grand epic, a a three-and-a-half-hour epic, but it barely has any epic scenes, epic shots. The score is not epic, and all the other performances of the supporting cast, including uh, Lily Gladstone, who plays Molly, That's, uh, she plays Leonardo DiCaprio's wife. She's the one with the sisters who get murdered, and she also is slowly being poisoned by Ernest. DiCaprio himself is slowly poisoning her because she has diabetes. And he is the one that's administering the so-called uh, insulin. But there's more in that insulin than just insulin. And um, her performance, her presence and her performance gives us one of the, some of the few moments where DiCaprio um, is allowed to show real tenderness and actually change his disposition as he relates to her. But all the supporting cast, including the FBI agents and the other Native Americans, the other Osage, the Osage elders, um, Molly's mother, just generally speaking, the rest of the cast, supporting cast, all seem to understand the type of film that they're in—a slice of life docudrama—and they play it in with a relaxed, naturalistic way. All their performances are down to earth. Molly plays the stoic Osage uh, Indian uh, character, the persona, the the what's the word that we're looking for? The temperament. The Osage uh, temperament is one of uh, of stoicism. Of they're very guarded with their emotions. They don't speak unnecessarily. They don't emote frivolously. Now, that's not to say that she has a dull performance. And certainly, also the the actors who uh, play her sisters, likewise, give some very powerful performances. Um, In fact, what we were reminded of as we were watching the film was uh, we were were, uh, reminded of uh, Casino and um, how uh, Sharon Stone was uh, nominated for an Oscar for her role in Casino. And that uh, at the time, that was her seminal performance. And people could you know, hardly believe that Scorsese got that kind of performance out of Sharon Stone. The, her best known role up until that point had been Basic Instinct. A, uh, an erotic thriller with Michael Douglas. But here in Lily Gladstone and the other actors who play her sisters, it's like including especially her sister Anna, who's an alcoholic and a party animal. We see, we see uh, echoes of the mental and emotional breakdown of Sharon Stone's character from Casino uh, we see echoes of that in Molly's sister, Anna. So we don't take anything away from Scorsese's ability to direct women and get phenomenal performances out of his women actors, his female actors. So, but at the same time, all the supporting cast seems to be at this 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 level, understanding what this film is, a slice of life Um uh, crime thriller, and and sort of like a crime mystery film that's historically based, and they're all playing it on that level, including the FBI agents who recognize that it's it's a it's this is a true crime film. That's what this is. But then along come De Niro and DiCaprio and Scorsese, who are trying to. You know, blow that up into a three and a half hour epic about the plight of the North American Indian, and it just doesn't work. Not least because the North Americans that we see being exploited, so-called and taking advantage of, are the richest, wealth, well, the wealthiest people in the world per capita at this time. And there's just this disconnect where where uh dicaprio and de niro stick out like a sore thumb and for all the wrong reasons that we're describing here they're just everything feels forced and labored and trying so hard desperate to reach that status of epic but failing miserably because there is no light there is no love there is no triumph of the human spirit in this story not really not nothing that's universal i mean the founding of the fbi the cracking of the case mm. the having the two main characters <clears throat> get their just desserts but they don't learn anything they don't change they don't grow and we the audience we we're we're taken on a journey that's Essentially, doesn't go anywhere. Starts one place and it ends pretty much the same place. This is not that's not an epic. It's certainly not high art. And why should this matter? Why does it matter? And why are we bringing it up? Because there was another film this year, which very much fell into the same trap. That other film was Oppenheimer. Imagine someone taking on what was one of the defining moments of humanity in the 20th century, the creation of the atomic bomb, and the man at the center of the creation of that device, the bringing into being That terrible technology. That colossus of materialist mechanicity. That destructive force. And what is the story that Christopher Nolan tells? In case you haven't seen it, it's a story of political intrigue. It's a story of a man who's being Uh, subjected to a political witch hunt because of his affiliations with the Communist Party. This is what the film is about. It's not about the creation of the atomic bomb, and it's certainly not about the implications, philosophical, geopolitical, economic, and ethical. The metaphysical repercussions the human cost of his creation it's none of that it's it's all of that's just barely given any lip service no i mean the focus is the guy who cre- who brought this terrible power into the world who birthed this this colossus of 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 destruction And and the filmmakers decided that the, the story that needed to be told there is how he was persecuted for being a communist. This is not an epic struggle. This is not an epic tale. This is the reduction of an epic moment of history with, with repercussions which span generations. And there were human stories in there that relate to us each and every one of us as we decide what it is that we do with our life what will our legacy be what are, what is it that we are giving to the world through our intellect through our powers through our creative abilities how are we applying our cre- our creative selves our true selves and the powers of our true selves how are we applying ourselves in the world none of that is Barely addressed. It all focuses on whether or not we have communists as friends, and how we can be persecuted for that, essentially canceled for it, or the old the uh, that version of it, uh, the uh, the fifties sixties version of being canceled. We suppose. Uh, Robert Downey Jr. plays a uh, a senator who goes after Oppenheimer in um, in um, uh, Senate hearings or congressional hearings. But it's all this backroom political dealings and so on and so forth. Then if you find that interesting, yeah, it's very interesting. It's backroom politics in the United States and the fallout of the creation of of this type of uh, military power. But it's not an epic it's 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 reducing something that's timeless and universal and truly epic, like a near mythological level of of history and it's and it's reducing it to the political you know the uh, political melodrama, right the soap opera of u s politics and and the um, suspicion of communists and so on and so forth that was, that was uh, so prevalent at the time. And the, the emphasis here is at the time. So can we learn certain things about, yeah, well, sure, there are certain things that happen in the film that you might say are applicable now as well. But what does the, what does the film teach us about human nature? what does the film how does the film raise up through the the triumph of the human spirit where is that in the film what the, the actual dropping of the bomb so we needed to talk about this because We all have, in the past, watched epic films. We may have watched them since we were young. Whether it's Gone with the Wind, uh, The Ten Commandments, Dr. Zhivago, again, we can list them off, but you can list off your own, the ones which move you, the ones which captured your imagination, but, but for, for various different reasons. You have a relationship with those epics, with the characters in those epics, with the acting, the directing, the soundtracks. The cinematography, the coming together of creativity to create an artifact, a film that captures the epic scale and scope of the human enterprise, the true human enterprise, which is to bring the greatness of God into the world. To be a mover and shaker of monumental turning points of human history. To be a mover and shaker shaping the very destiny of humanity. Such that generations to come, looking back, will see those turning points and say this was a defining moment Of human destiny, and that all of humanity, their outlook, their perspective on life, on the world, on the universe, on themselves, was irrevocably changed, hopefully changed for the better in some capacity, or their eyes opened in some capacity even if the opening of their eyes was to the depths of depravity humanity is capable of, the true epic shows the hero, the triumphant human spirit, overcoming the depths of that depravity and accomplishing and succeeding in some capacity in spite of the depths of human depravity. This, of course, again, was was what Schindler's List was all about. What's, what attracted Spielberg to the to the novel Schindler's Ark and that story of Oscar Schindler and the Schindler Jews who survived. Whereas all the other Holocaust stories that he was prevent, that he was presented with, he said he wouldn't, he wouldn't do. Because they didn't have. They didn't have that all-important aspect of the epic. That moment where of of Sam and Frodo on the slopes of Mount Doom, with with uh, uh, volcanic ash and you know falling on them, and ar- surrounded by armies and orcs and Nazgul and 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 Frodo collapsing under the tremendous weight of the ring, the burden that he alone can carry. And then Sam, who represents, Sam is a symbol for the mortal vessel. Frodo is the innermost being, the divine soul who carries the weight of the karma. And Sam says to Frodo, Mr. Frodo, I can't carry it for you but I can carry you. And he lifts Frodo up on his shoulders. And there's that, and the, and the music swells into a crescendo. And when you see reaction videos on YouTube of people who have never seen this scene before, and you might recall, you might relate to this, when you saw that scene for the first time, did you not well up with tears, if not burst out? with tears of joy Were you not moved to your very heart and soul to your very being of the triumph of the human spirit of the hero in the face of incredible odds faced with an uphill uh, uh, climb up the side of a volcano into the very heart of an erupting volcano The tremendous friendship and loyalty between Sam, Frodo's gardener, right? The one who tends the garden. Why do we tend a garden? So that the seed may sprout and grow and produce fruit. Our innermost being is a seed. And so we all must be like Sam, a gardener, tending to that seed. We all must have the the courage, the bravery, the loyalty, the dedication, the devotion, and the strength and endurance to recognize that we might not be able to carry the karma of our being We can serve our being. We can carry our being. We can carry the weight that is our responsibility to carry. And that we have within us to carry. We have that strength. This is the time, ty- this is the kind of universal truths that epics present to us. We can turn to kingdom of heaven, where Balian is presented with his knight's oath. Uh, be kind and upright, and speak the truth always, even if it leads to your death. Uh, safeguard the weak, safeguard the weak and innocent, and do no harm. And that is your oath. And he gets smacked across the face. He mm-hmm. says, and that's so you remember it. And then later on in the film, when Balian is charged with the defense of Jerusalem. He calls for every man-at-arm, every man at arms or capable of bearing them, to kneel. And he recites his own knight's oath to all of them. And he says, "Rise a knight, rise a knight." And he lifts up these these frightened and scared, and frankly, Uh, unqualified, untested, unproven men who now have to defend Jerusalem from the armies of Salahuddin. And Balian finds a way to lift them up and raise them up with the righteous fire of virtue that burns in the heart of a true knight, a true servant of God, a holy warrior, a paladin of God. So when the priest asks them, will you all who do you think you are? Will you alter the world? Does making a knight make a man a better fighter? And Balian says, Yes. Yes, it does. These are the moments, the themes that that epic tales are woven around. This, this is the these moments are the heart and soul of epic filmmaking moments such as when Luke Skywalker is 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 fighting Darth Vader and then he he throws away his lightsaber and he says I'm no I'm not I'm not giving in to my anger I'm not giving in to my hate And the Emperor says, so be it, Jedi, and starts electrocuting him with forced lightning. And then in that moment, when he appeals to his father, Anakin, Darth Vader, and he appeals to him, father, father, please. And in that moment, we see the redemption of Anakin Skywalker. And the death of the Emperor, the end of the Empire, and an entire trilogy was woven around that single moment. Because of its universality. Because that moment has spoken to generations now. About a story in a galaxy far, far away. A science fantasy. It's not... Star Wars is not science fiction. It's high mythology. It's science fantasy. But it's epic. It's a sweeping tale. You can map all the characters onto the Tree of Life. It's profoundly esoteric. It's profoundly mythological. Like Lord of the Rings. Like Game of Thrones. Like so many other properties that we can name. Like Lawrence of Arabia. Or Richard Attenborough's Gandhi. These sweeping larger-than-life tales about larger-than-life Characters doing larger-than-life things. And all of the... An epic speaks to us, to the source within us, which has at least the potential to be at that level. Because it is an individuated essence of what is most epic in the universe, which is the Logos. When someone tries to take a story and characters that do not uh, exhibit any qualities Of that epic power of that epic light and love that epic source of true goodness when someone takes a story of characters who are uh uh, base and and dull and and one-dimensional and and just driven by greed or fear desire for power and money and and uh racist superiority and that's all we see but they make a three and a half hour telling of that this is what plato would have called the vulgarity and that's how you feel coming out of the theater that you were just subjected to this almost like unnecessary psychological torture Why? There's no redemption arc. There's no light. There's no love. There's no spirit. There's no raising up. There's no light in the darkness. It's precisely the thing that kept Spielberg away from the Holocaust movies until he found Schindler's List. It's the same with Oppenheimer. Will it be the same for Napoleon? Well, we'll see. Will Ridley Scott get it right? We'll see as of late in the past few years, it's been spotty. It's been hit and miss with Ridley Scott sometimes. So we'll see. but he's an aging he's an aging filmmaker. He's quite old now. I believe he's in his he's definitely in his 70s. He might even be in his 80s. but you know we'll see. And this is what we wanted to, to predominantly talk about today. Because obviously, this is very near and dear to our heart. We went to theatre school, after all, we studied acting and, and theatre and, um, and we were very passionate uh, about, at one time in our life, becoming a filmmaker. And we are very passionate about the films which move us the epic tales, particularly, which speak of these Great men and great women who accomplished great things. And, uh, and again, moved the needle for all of humanity for all time. These are the films that spoke to us on that deepest level of our innermost being. And more than that, the being of being, the being of beings, the, the, the logos, the cosmic Christ alux so when you watch the greatest story ever told about the life of jesus that's that's what you are given that's what you are presented with and you are connecting through the characters and the and the the, the, the stories being presented and the presentation of the scale and scope the 70 millimeters and the tremendous soundtrack etc and all I, all the rest of it the symphonic music and everything else right you you you, you are given an a, a moving picture which does justice to the spirit and essence behind the characters and behind the story on which that film is based and that is when an expression of art becomes high art where through your interaction with it, you can touch the divine. The divine spark inside of you, your essence, that, that spark, the seed, the monad, is kindled, is awoken, speaks from within your heart and says, yes, yes, this is it. There's something here. And you're moved to tears, tears of joy, tears of beauty, tears of wonder. You can feel your heart expanding. Why? Because what you are watching is epic. It's, it's, it, it's, it bursts through the limits of corporeal reality. It breaks down the walls of, 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 of intellectual uh, 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 limitation and small-minded thinking and similarly it bursts through the walls of armor that we have built around our heart and our heart swells and we can feel the spirit moving inside of us as we as we live vicariously through through Lawrence or you know through Gandhi or through Luke Skywalker or through Maximus in Gladiator. We are uplifted, or through Frodo and Sam, and we are touched by the very hand of God that's reaching out through that artifact, through that motion picture, that epic, which has the ability to be as a portal large enough, wide enough, grandiose enough for that hand of God to come out and touch us in our very soul. It's appropriate. It is appropriately scaled to the level of the source material and the spirit of the source itself that is trying to come into the world and come into our hearts That to us, is what the epic is. And it can't be underst- it can't be overstated. But this is not, this is not um, um, what would you call uh, overindulgent hyperbole. You just have to remember, and put yourself back into the shoes. When you were younger, and you saw Close Encounters for the first time. Or 2001, A Space Odyssey. Or any of the other epics that you watch on a regular basis, even to this day. Because it's an annual ritual for you. Or biannual, or every few years you just have to watch The Ten Commandments, or you know, Gone with the Wind, or who knows what. But certainly, we can tell you, We're not going to be watching Killers of the Flower Moon again. There's there's if we're interested in knowing more about the story, we'll watch the documentary and we'll see all the facets of the story that were left on the cutting room floor, despite the three and a half hour runtime. If we're interested, if we're curious to know more about that story, but there's no there's no spark of human triumph in this three-and-a-half-hour film to warrant us watching it again, which is a shame because even Scorsese's films like Goodfellas and Casino and Gangs of New York, you can argue or you can, that, that those films are crime films and you can argue that there's no spark of human um, triumph in any of those films, but there is the spark of universal truth, and there is the tragedy of the fallen character and the redemption arc of one kind or another. And the realization of one kind of another. There's as bleak and as dark and as dour. And as violent as those films are, there is, they have more in common with epic filmmaking than does Killers of a Flower Moon. Because the epic journey that those characters go on is profound, even if it's tragic. It is profound, it is meaningful, and all of them, even if it's just for a moment, a split second, they all experience a kind of see-the-light moment. And they're tragic stories. They're tragic tales. And and yet, there's an operatic quality about them. And Scorsese has this ability as a filmmaker. Killers of a Flower Moon does not have that operatic quality to it. It falls so short of the mark of being a true epic, but it's trying so hard to be in all the wrong ways. It's labored and it's forced. It's stars. One of them is the executive producer. They're trying so hard and that runtime is so long. And it just... The, the, the material, it just doesn't warrant it. It's a mismatch. It's the wrong story. And of all the stories from the Native experience to tell in an attempt to capture the epic struggle of the Native American, uh, this was not, this was not the, the story to try to do that. So you might ask, well, okay, tell us a story that is. And we will. Last of the Mohicans. Last of the Mohicans, uh, directed by Michael Mann. There is an epic which captures, even though it was written, I believe it was written by a white man. And its, it's protagonist, it's Hawkeye, is a, is a white. It's a white who's adopted and raised by the Mohicans. He himself is not the last of the Mohicans, it's his adopted father who is that. But regardless, that is an epic novel that was adapted into an epic film, and it captures the heart and soul of the struggle that was taking place at that time um, between the, the, uh, the British and the French. And also the Native Americans and the colonizing Europeans. And also the struggle between the different tribes, the different nations of the American Natives. But it's a far better, more epic, more appropriate story dealing with these colossal, enormous themes than the uh, true crime thriller slash mystery of uh, Fairfax County, Oklahoma, embodied in the Osage story. This is something that's more appropriate for for one of those reality TV shows that talk about you know, these those true crime reality TV shows on Netflix. That's what this story is more appropriate for, or, or a documentary, or, or 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 what have you. Let's take a pause, and let's get to a couple uh, chats. Stuart Wilson said, "Aloha." Haven't seen this particular film. I did watch Kingdom of Heaven though, and um, we could talk at length about Kingdom of Heaven because it's for us. It's even though we we believe Gladiator is an incredible film and a very esoteric film at that. Um we're always we're always on the fence which which we feel is uh Ridley Scott's masterpiece, whether it's Gladiator or Kingdom of Heaven. And we always end up leaning a little bit more to Kingdom of Heaven. Um because there's so much in every uh every uh every time we, we re-watch it. But it's not everyone's cup of tea. You really have to watch the director's cut and most people have only seen the cinematic cut of kingdom of heaven so if you, and um as best as we can tell the streaming services and whatnot uh it's not the director's cut that they show they show the cinematic cut so we have the director's cut on dvd so that's that that changes things a bit for those people who who find they can't get into it and it is Similarly long. The director's cut, we believe, is well over three hours. So, but it also has a, uh, a proper intermission, right? So you can take a break between the, the, the two parts. And Stuart Wilson followed that up and he said, perhaps this is a transition away from Hollywood as a generator of films, uh, epic into who knows what, into generation of film epics into who knows what, as the next wave of epic storytelling. I, th- uh, I was thinking of the tumultuous times we live in as I listened to your thoughts, and this feels like a death knell moment for big-budget star-led attempts at epics. Perhaps that era peaked, and this is the downslide. slide. This is one of the reasons why we're, we're talking about this today, is because is this another sign? Is this another facet of the great awakening of humanity? That we have written an entire book about, which was hopefully touch wood, will be coming soon, and you will all be able to read it. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> but definitely when you compound the woke garbage that has been uh being um uh you know slurped into the uh, into the the trough and fed to the world, when you look at all that woke propaganda, and then you realize that these epics have <clears throat> or attempted epics are focusing on all the wrong things. They're focusing on politics and identity politics even though you'd be hard-pressed to call Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer woke and you'd be hard-pressed to call Killers of the Flower Moon woke, nonetheless, both films were, were made in such a way as to not trigger the ire of woke Hollywood. And Killers of the Flower Moon particularly was made in such a way, and was acted in a such a way by De Niro and DiCaprio. We we're we, we're going to stop short of saying they were overacting. They weren't overacting. They were just acting with an intensity and a desperation which didn't match the rest of the cast, didn't match the backdrop, didn't match the rest of the film, didn't match the story. And the result is they stick out like a sore thumb, and it's and it's awful. And because Lily Gladstone's performance was was wonderfully subdued for the most part, except when she was wailing in agony because of the death of her mother, or the death of her sisters, which was appropriate because the stoicism of the Osage allows them to keep this this very again stoic uh, uh they they don't show their emotions easily or often but When crisis hits and when it's called for, then all of that pent up, you know, self-control and discipline, when finally those barriers drop, you get this overwhelming flood of emotion coming out. And it's appropriate to the depiction of the cultural idiosyncrasies of the Osage people. But that's where it ends. There's, you, never, you never get into any kind of semblance of, okay, are we going to have some kind of uh, uh, exploration of, is it, is it healthy to repress your emotions? And then have these bursts and, and outbursts of emotion? Is that, is that a good way to be? Well, we never get any of that. And as for Leonardo DiCaprio's character, he has no redeeming qualities or very few redeeming qualities other than he has some moments of tenderness with his wife. He he loves his wife, but he loves his wife, yeah, but not so much that he doesn't participate in a plot to slowly poison her. Or maybe he doesn't realize he's slowly poisoning her because because he's given a, a bullshit story about what he's giving her. Yes, it's insulin, but they tell him to to add this other thing to it. And said, "Oh, it's going to calm her down. It's going to it's going to let her relax. It's going to, you know." And he and he seems to believe that. But it's really hard to tell with DiCaprio's performance if he if he knows that he's poisoning his wife, if he thinks he might be, but he goes through with it anyway, or he doesn't really know or he's on the fence, you can't tell because DiCaprio is always doing this. That's basically, you know, 99% of his performance is this. And it's just a shame. It's just a shame. But again, what's, what Stuart is saying here is, is this indicative of a death knell, a kind of death knell? Have, have we reached the end of an era? A th- uh was it last year or a couple of years ago, Denis Villeneuve released his uh, first part of uh, Dune? And there too, or if you go back a few years, he did uh, Blade Runner 2049. Now, again, here again, we have a situation where we have uh, science, yeah, it's science fiction, but Dune is also very much a science fantasy. It's a, it's a high mythology set in space. And set on Arrakis, and it's a very esoteric book. Uh, the source material that is Frank Herbert's Dune is a great deal of esotericism and symbolism and allegory in the uh, source material, right down to the uh, the wars against the AIs, right, and the outlawing of AI in the universe by the Emperor. Uh, the, what they were called the Anda, the Andalusian Wars was that? Are we just making that up? regardless whether it was blade runner 2049 or dune we had epic filmmaking you can't question the well technically on a technical level we had this epic filmmaking right we had imax screens or 70 millimeter screens or whatever they were and uh, these sweeping shots these 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 huge Sets and these, of course, the colossal landscapes of arrakis or the colossal landscapes of, of uh, Los Angeles in 2049. And but let's face it, Blade Runner 2049 is just it's just a noir detective story. No Noir detective story has ever been epic, nor will it ever be one, except the closest one to really being epic was Blade Runner, but still, it's a very contained. And a very intimate story. Despite the fact that it has grandiose implications. But what Blade Runner 2049 and Dune lack, uh, what they suffer from is Denis Villeneuve's very intellectual, very cold filmmaking style. They don't have any heart. They don't have a soul. They lack the spark. They lack the spirit that we've been mentioning is essential for the epic. That's what really makes an epic. And, you know, Dune left us feeling cold. We haven't watched it since. We have no interest in watching it. We, we have, we're not excited for the sequel. Or sorry, the sequel, the part two, the, the 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 rest of the story. We're not because there's it was big, it was loud, it was you know, the uh um Hans Zimmer's score, which under normal circumstances, Hans Zimmer is one of our favorite uh film composers. But he didn't do a soundtrack for Dune in so much as he did just industrial noise. And um, and yeah, and Blade Runner 2049, likewise, just left us cold. It didn't have the heart that the original Blade Runner had. And what was the heart and soul of the first Blade Runner? Absolutely, it's Roy Batty's monologue at the end. When Harrison Ford, when Deckard, is hanging off the steel girder off the side of the building and he slips and Roy Batty the 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 replicant that Deckard was hunting but now in the last scenes of the film was hunting Deckard he grabs Deckard and he lifts him up and he, and he, he saves his life and Deckard's sitting there and the rain's coming down and, and Deckard's like exhausted and he's beaten and everything else, but, but he's no longer in danger. Roy Batty, the replicant, just saved his life. And then Roy Batty kneels down next to him and says, I've seen things that you people wouldn't believe. And he has this beautiful monologue about how all of those memories will be lost like tears and rain Right? He says, time to die. And as he does so, that's the incept date or the expiry date on the replicant. Roy Batty dies, and as he does so, his hand loosens up the grip. He has something in his hand, and he the grip fails and up flies the white dove that he had been holding in his hand. And it's that symbol of the ascension of the Holy Spirit essentially, of the, 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 that this replicant, this being, this creature, because it's not exactly explained in Blade Runner. What exactly is the nature of these replicants? Are they robots or they're, but they're not robots. They're, they're genetic creations. They're, they're like kind of a clone. And we know that because of, um, when, uh, Deckard is looking for clues <clears throat> and he goes to see Chu and Chu makes eyes, right? He, that's the scene where he goes in and th- everything's refrigerated. Um, oh, it's not uh, Deckard who goes there. It's, um, it's Roy Batty and, um, and one of the other replicants. They go to visit Chu because they want to get access to uh, uh, Terrell, Dr. Terrell at Terrell Corporation. And so they go to visit Chu because he makes eyes. He says, ah, you Nexus 6, Ah, I made your eyes, I made your eyes. And uh, Roy Batty says to him, Chu, if only you could have seen, if only you knew what I have seen with your eyes. Right. So there's this whole theme running through the entire film that these, these replicants have come back to Earth. They're trying to get in to see... Tyrell, um, Tyrell, who designed them, who built them, or made them, is the correct, more correct term, because they want more life. They, they, they want to be free of the inception date or their expiry date in which they die, because if they have a five-year lifespan. All of this is explained in the film. So you have these, this, these replicants, these, these biological clones, essentially, are manufactured Again, not androids, not robots, not AI exactly, but they're, they're biological, but they're not exactly human. But they have these human longings and these human characteristics and these human sensibilities. They love and they fear. And they long for at the very least what most intellectual animals long for, which is a long life. So there's in the in the telling of that tale, you have that universality coming into play. And you have and there's a there's a likability. there's a there's a there's a charisma, and there's a accessibility of these antagonists. Whereas Deckard, if anything, Deckard is the most unlikable character in in Blade Runner. But regardless, um, so all of that is in the original film. Very little of that is expressed in any meaningful way in Blade Runner 2049. Denis Villeneuve's Sequel, because it's uh he as a filmmaker is all sizzle, very little steak. It's very stylized, it's very beautifully shot. it's very, you know, hats off to him as a technical filmmaker, but somehow, somehow, if he, if there is a driving spirit within him giving him the vision to do these works, to do these to undertake these uh, these enterprises, it he 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 doesn't know how to translate that spirit, that essence into the performances onto the scene screen in a way in which it all gels and it all comes together as a true epic. It's an epic want to be wanna be. It has the appearances of an epic, but it falls short, just like Killers of the Flower Moon, just like Oppenheimer, just like what Stuart was saying here about this seems to be. This transition away from the genuine epic. Everything seems to be done for the wrong reasons. Or maybe the best of intentions, but from the but but ultimately from the wrong place. And that's what translates onto the screen. And it's cold and it's lifeless and it's heartless. Stylized, yes. It's got all the style there, it's got all the special effects, it's got all the CGI, it's got the big name stars, it's got all of the The window dressing, but the heart and soul of it is is missing. Benjamin Raphael says, Since the early mid-2000s, I noticed that the quality of popular art forms like music, film, and cartoons has declined. Hollywood and Disney have been exposed as having many pedophile employees, and some big names have been linked to Jeffrey Epstein. I guess we cannot expect good results from these film producers anymore because they've lost good faith. They're just there to earn money. The uh, connection to uh, an interest in younger people and other such forms of uh, sexual degeneration, and other such intense, extreme appetites. um, And the indulgence of such intense, extreme appetites certainly are indications of a intensification of mechanicity. And or another way to put that is you know doubling down on ego ego is not creative ego cannot be creative ego can only be derivative just like ai like those ai bots that yeah they make things that are that can be visually interesting but they're not creative they're all derivative based on you know millions of images and they just cherry pick this that and the other thing and they put together something according to the prompts which you give it. Same with ChatGPT. That AI, as we explain in our book, wasn't invented recently. That's not a new creation AI. We all have AI inside of us. It's called the rational mind. And Hollywood has been creating derivative drivel forever. For every um, uh, Gone with the Wind or Ten Commandments, Lawrence of Arabia or Star Wars, right? There were a dozen cheap knockoffs, many of which went straight to video in the, uh, in the 80s and 90s, for example, right? <clears throat> so Hollywood has always been about, and Hollywood is always doing like remakes, remaking the same story over and over and over again for different generations, right? Because fu- Hollywood is fundamentally uncreative. Producers, Hollywood producers, are fundamentally uncreative. So what you're saying, Benjamin, is true. And and if you watch a film like Hollywood Babylon which which you know, like it or lump it, uh, that's the one with Brad Pitt and Margot Robbie. It kind of shows you an insight that the debauchery and deprav and depravity of the movers and shakers of Hollywood uh, has been around for a long time. Just maybe not it, it, the depravity just might not have been at the level and the depth of depravity where we are at today. Certainly not because on the Kali Yuga, it's, it's the downward spiral, right? So things get worse and worse and worse and worse. And, and, uh, People who are on the downward spiral of addictions to anything, right? They get deeper and deeper and deeper into their indulgences, into their addictions, into their their obsessions, into their fetishes. Into the and when when the uh, when their hunger is no longer satisfied at this level. They've got to, they've got to, they've got to ratchet it up. They got to go to the next level, just like a drug addict who starts out with a certain type of drug, and then graduates to a harder and harder and harder drugs. Right? They they go from whatever, like cocaine, to you know, crack, to uh, crack cocaine, to heroin, or who knows? Right? We're not an expert on drugs, so we don't know what the actual hierarchy is but people who start taking fentanyl right they don't they don't start out on the streets they end up on the streets right and where, when usually the ones who got addicted to taking painkillers end up on the streets shooting themselves up with raw heroin because at some point they just can't afford the painkillers anymore and it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't dull their pain anymore doesn't matter how many of them they take but they can't take that many anyway because they can't afford that many so they, they they have no choice but to graduate to ever harder drugs. And that's the nature of addi- addiction, the downward spiral of addiction. And we all know that. We've all experienced that to one degree or another when we observe ourselves and we recognize that um, the ego is never satisfied with what it has. It always wants more and more and more and more. And it's always pushing the boundaries. So. Benjamin's, uh, uh, observation here since the early mid 2000s, the last great, uh, film epic film trilogy, uh, will probably be remembered as, uh, the Lord, as Lord of the Rings. Can anybody think of a, an epic film or epic trilogies since the lord of the rings kingdom of heaven released at the same time as um, the return of the king not the same time but after the return of the king so one of the reasons why kingdom of heaven didn't do well in the box office because literally a month or two before uh kingdom of heaven came out people were watching the Battle of uh, of Minas Tirith, and so so that when Ridley Scott's film uh, about the Crusades and about the Battle of Jerusalem came came out, and Ridley Scott did an ultra naturalistic, ultra realistic depiction of what that battle might have looked like, uh, I mean, it just couldn't compare. It couldn't razzle dazzle the audiences, the general audiences like uh, Return of the King did. So unfortunately that was a poorly timed release of Kingdom of Heaven. It should never have been released so close to Return of the King and certainly not after Return of the King. That was just a, a botched decision by the studios and the marketing department to it was just, uh, um, uh, you know, it was just. Um, um, what's the expression? Um, you know, deaf, dumb, and blind. Right to 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 the uh, inability the inability to read the uh, the landscape there. so on that note uh the question of have we seen the end of the epic i mean the matrix trilogy is an epic but many people dislike the second and third films and most people misunderstand uh the allegory the symbolism of the matrix and what the matrix itself is uh, the conspiracy theory theorists love The Matrix because they interpret The Matrix as the uh, global elite and the, uh, the New World Order and the mainstream media and all of the other uh, facets by which the conspiracy theorists believe humanity is enslaved. Well, that's why we've written an entire chapter on uh, the red pill of conspiracy and how that is one of the pillars of the great awakening of humanity, and we've discussed that before. So, the Matrix is an epic science fiction trilogy, which, um, which is really talking about the the actual matrix by which humanity is enslaved, and that's the mind. That's the our own ego-mind and ego-heart and and physical body. And all of our beliefs and conditioning is layered on top of that. But ultimately, all of that comes from within ourselves. The matrix is in here. The matrix is not out there. Everything out there is a reflection of and a projection of the matrix in here. Does anybody want to share what some of their uh, favorite... Epic films are of all time, and why, and what made them epic for you. We can start by uh, bringing up the uh, Godfather trilogy, but it's not for us. It's not really so much the Godfather trilogy as it is uh, the Godfather parts one and two. That to us is again epic filmmaking, despite the fact that it's you know it's about a mafia family, but the sweeping themes and the sweeping arcs story arcs and character arcs and the the family tragedies that the, the that the the characters undergo and their their journey as characters especially um Michael Corleone um And then the soundtrack, right? That, and how much that music, the score of the film, lends so much to its status as an epic, right? Because an epic symphonic soundtrack just raises everything. And we know the power of sound. We know the ability and the power of music to move us. Not just emotionally, but or physically, but spiritually, right? And so when you have um, an epic storytelling, epic performances, epic direction, epic cinematography, and then you layer onto that an epic score, now you're firing on all cylinders, right? Now you have a Lawrence of Arabia which is for us, one of our favorite epics ever made. It's, it's a film that we, we watch maybe once a year. And there's, it's, there's something sublime about uh, David Lean's masterpiece. There's something sublime about the performances, even Though, by today's standards, they may seem a little bit overacted, a little bit melodramatic, like Anthony Quinn uh, and uh, Omar Sharif. But for the time, for the place, for the story being told, and for the the scale and scope of the story being told, uh, it's all just perfectly balanced and appropriate. And when you look at those battle scenes, and everything that's and you look at the the um, you know Lawrence Lawrence's slow downward spiral into madness into bloodlust. There's that scene where it's you know the 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 killer the murderers he's like he's like no prisoners no prisoners and 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 you can see Peter O'Toole. It's it he's he's working up. Like the 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 demon, the madness, the the anger, the the frustration, the, the 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 terrifying buildup inside of him, Until finally he yells the he gives the order, no prisoners, no prisoners. And then that heart wrenching scene, where he comes back, you know, and he says you know, he says to his commanding officers. It's like it's like I don't send me back there. It's like it's like why not? It's like you 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 you're the perfect man for the job. And he's like, but there was something about I had to kill a man. They said, well, of course, that's a nasty business. Nobody likes to do that. He goes, no, 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 that's not what's troubling me about it. This is well, what's troubling you about? It? He says, I enjoyed it. And in that moment, it's like he's he he's he's becoming cognizant. Of the of the monster he's becoming, even as because even as he's becoming one of the most decorated and uh, and 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 uh, celebrated individual in the whole of the Arabian theater and the British military and back home and the media and everything, but but he's witnessing himself, uh, 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 you know, slipping into this downward spiral of of this terrible thing that he's becoming and it's terrifying him it's 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 horrifying him and his commanding officer is, is his superior the general says oh nonsense nonsense don't talk nonsense no 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 you're the best man for the job i'm sending you back there and then there's that you know the other fellow the politician fellow who says oh lawrence and Lawrence turns around, and in that moment, the general can see all the blood-soaked, blood-stained scars seeping through Lawrence's uh clothes. And in that and the, the politician then goes, Oh, nothing. He just he just called Lawrence's name because he wanted him to turn around so the general could see how Lawrence had been tortured and how Lawrence had been whipped. And that Lawrence so very likely, Lawrence is a broken man. It's these it's the the, 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 the psychological and the physical uh, journey of someone like that and the experience of what he went through. It's like and the backdrop and the cinematography and everything else meets and matches the epic scale and scope of that heroic journey and everything gels together it's like it's like in many ways it's like the definitive epic film from a historical personalities perspective like you know a mover and shaker someone who changed history forever certainly in the middle east essentially created saudi arabia as we know it today and all of the fallout and all the implications there too. That was really the work of, you know, really one man who, who, who was instrumental in all of that. And, the, and what he endured and what he had to become in order to, to accomplish that. And all of that is explored in an epic way, but also in a quiet and an intimate way at times. So that's another aspect of the epic. Is it's not everything is always everything larger than life, but the epic has that scope and it has that scale to go from the very big to the very small. From the grandiose and enormous to the very tight and intimate moments, the human moments that are connecting the inner psychological struggle and the spiritual struggle of the players on the world stage, on this epic world stage, playing out this epic story. But we're but we are given insight in 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 quiet moments of intimacy into their internal struggle to uh, to to process and endure and and overcome what they must overcome on this in this grandiose colossal monumental undertaking that they have found themselves at the center of. Stewart says, there was a quote in Kingdom of Heaven when Balian is approached to marry the queen and she implores him to accept her hand and condemn Guy to death by murder and avoid war. She says to him, one day you'll see that a little evil prevents many deaths. Um, Yeah, she'll say, the the quote is, one day you'll come to realize that... um, Sometimes we need to do a little evil to do a greater good. And uh, he gives pause for thought and replies if this is truly the kingdom of heaven, then, then <clears throat> it is a kingdom of conscience or it is nothing, he says. If this truly is the kingdom of heaven, it must be a kingdom of conscience or it is nothing. And by this, Balian is basically saying, uh, if if we uh, betray the principles of heaven, then to 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 preserve these walls, to preserve this so-called kingdom, if we preserve this kingdom by betraying the integrity and the principles of heaven. Then this kingdom is not worth preserving. We cannot preserve the kingdom of heaven by betraying the principles on, on the foundation on which it is built. This is, and yes, it hits home very hard because how many people do precisely that? And they rationalize, right? Lying and cheating and betraying and doing whatever they need to do, and they rationalize it and they said, Because while well, we're doing a greater good. One must realize that everyone from Bill Gates to Klaus Schwab to all those other global, there's plenty, plenty, plenty among those global elites who honestly think they're doing what's best for humanity and what's best for the planet. They've rationalized that, oh, well, okay, well, maybe we have to do this and maybe we have to do that and we have to clamp down on free speech and we have to clamp down on this and we have to take control of that and we have to herd these people and, control them and everything else but it's really for their own good and it's really for the greater good they honestly believe that they well and truly believe that they 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 really think that and that's exactly what balian is speaking out against when his potential queen to be and um and after jerusalem falls she says, I, what, what, what's to happen to us now? She goes, I'm still the queen of Akaba or whatever. I'm still the queen of this and I'm still the queen of that. And Balian says, decide not to be a queen and I shall come to you. He says, let go of your attachments. Let go of your royal identity. Be just Sibylla. Be just a human being. And I will come to you. I will, and I will be your husband. Because I'm not looking for a queen. I'm looking for a human being. Um, Benjamin Raphael says the epic films that I like the most include The Ten Commandments, Jesus of Nazareth, The Greatest Story Ever Told, Star Wars, and Lord of the Rings. Well, of course, all of those are on our list. Uh, and 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 what can one say? About the Ten Commandments. If not, you know, like Lawrence of Arabia, the Ten Commandments is this tremendous archetypal uh, template for the great Hollywood epic. Ten Commandments, Ben Hur, Charlton Heston was the actor, the actor who personified. The epic hero. I mean, he 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 embodied the gravitas and the scale and scope, the magnitude. Oh, and of course, Stuart pipes in here and says, you know, Spartacus. No, I am Spartacus. No, I am Spartacus. I mean, what a great Stanley Kubrick epic. Uh, that's a that's that's it's a um and certainly the prototype the uh the the gladiator is more than just a little homage to Stanley Kubrick's Spartacus. I mean the, there there are a lot of similarities between the two. Um not just the 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 subject matter and everything else. But yeah, uh Spartacus, Ten Commandments, Ben-Hur and in just like Kirk Douglas had the Despite being not a large man, unlike, you know, um, uh, a, he wasn't like a John Wayne or, a, or a, a, a Charlton Heston, and yet he had the gravitas. He had the the, the screen presence to to, um, and so did his co-stars to be able to carry that work. And of course, Kubrick, as the filmmaker, even though Kubrick was still relatively young then, I don't think it's, Kubrick. Kubrick really didn't achieve the height of his cinematic powers until he got into 2001: Space Odyssey and Barry Lyndon and and some of his later works, you know, um, The Shining and so on. But uh but certainly Spartacus was ranks in one of those uh in the like the top 10 of some of the greatest epics ever made. But coming back to Charlton Heston, we you know, his Moses, and then you put him opposite Yul Brynner and Yul Brynner's sublime performance as Ramses, And then I can never remember the, uh, is the actress's name, was it Vivian Lee? No, it wasn't Vivian. It, was, it wasn't Vivian Lee who played, um, um, Ramsey's wife. Um, Whose name I can't remember, but uh, the one who, uh, of course, has the hots for Moses. <laughs> um, but the scenes between Ramses um, and Moses, between Charlton Heston and uh, Yul Brenner, are just—you can, you can—they're so voluptuous. They're so full, and that whole film. Is so voluptuous. They 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 put so much of their heart and soul into it because they they it was as if they really cared about the magnitude of the source material they were putting they were they were putting to cinema, that they were putting to screen, but they weren't trying too hard. On the contrary, they were all bringing their a game and everybody and everything brought their a game and the result was you have this incredible larger than life epic cinematic experience which again is appropriate to the subject matter it's appropriate to the material and ben hur was another you know another one um you really are the king of kings i mean it was just i mean there's there's these iconic lines that, that just echo because these films get played regularly every single year on mainstream uh, television. and people demand to, to see them. They want to see them every Christmas, 10 commandments plays. Um, Benjamin says, Stewart's quote from the kingdom of heaven applies to the ongoing conflict in Israel right now? Um, well, uh, it remains to be seen what the greater good is that <laughs> they're, they're trying to accomplish. Uh, but definitely the, the little evil part is fairly clear. And they, again, they really do think in the long run they're they're doing a greater good if they can clamp down and start forcing the 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 great um, the rise of the global uh, one world government or the great reset and you know, all their plans for that. Um, but if If the Battle of Armageddon is not going to be a battle between nation-states, what if it's a battle between nations and the state? For what are nations if not their people? Something to consider, because all it's going to take is for a handful of radicalized young, um, disenfranchised young Muslim men who have been exported from the Middle East from places like Syria and elsewhere. Um, They have been exported to the West by the hundreds of thousands over the last few years, if not decade. And uh, all it's going to take is one such individual to walk into a Jewish bakery or synagogue or bank here in Canada, for example, and yell Allah Akbar and blow himself up or gun down a bunch of civilians. In that instant, our illustrious Prime Minister will enact the War Measures Act like that, which is the equivalent of martial law here in Canada. And or he'll prorogue Parliament indefinitely, which means shut down Parliament indefinitely much like his so his his father his father uh enacted the war measures act back in the 1960s during the FLU uh FLQ crisis and that was that was when that was happening in Quebec the FLQ was the uh the Parti Québécois and the the freedom liberté québécois or whatever that fraternité liberté québécois or whatever it was in french the FLQ but today it's the, 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 um, the Quebecois party and, um, and there were some, there were some violence and threats and this and that happening. And so, uh, Trudeau, the elder enacted the war measures act back in the sixties. And we feel very strongly that Trudeau, the younger, if he is really Trudeau, the younger has been itching. He's just, he's just, he can't wait to pull the trigger and enact the War Measures Act during his reign. And or, like his other father down in Cuba, suspend parliament indefinitely. Right? Just like his other, quote, father down in Cuba, or father figure anyway, down in Cuba. He wants to follow in his father's footsteps. Pick one, doesn't matter. But the difference being that our illustrious Prime Minister, uh, you know, he's he's gonna want to permanently enact the War Measures Act. And if some young disaffected Muslim does create havoc and 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 do some kind of act of terrorism here in Canada or down in the States or wherever, that's all the laws on the books since 9/11. They're all, gonna, they're all gonna just flip, turn them up on a switch like this. And freedom of speech out the window. And and political dissent out the window. Is anything you say against the ruling party in power? You will be speaking out against the state. You can be judged or uh or suspected as an enemy of the state. And an enemy of the state is an illegal combatant, right? A possible a possible Palestinian sympathizer. That's an illegal combatant. That's not a citizen. So you have no rights under the Constitution and you have no rights under the Geneva Convention. The black suburbans pull up to your house, the black hood goes over your head, the wrists get zip tied. And when next the black hood comes off of your head, you don't know where you are. You don't know how long you're going to be there. You're not given a phone call. You're not given a lawyer, you have no rights, you have no recourse for any kind of treatment. They can torture you, they can do whatever the hell they want to you, and you have absolutely no way of getting word to the outside world about where you are and what's happened to you. And people will just start disappearing. It's all been done before, it's all happened before. All you need to do is speak to your relatives, if you have them, who lived in the former Soviet bloc countries under communism. They'll tell you. This is, this, is, this is not a new playbook. Only it'll be done on a scale and scope, on a truly epic scale and scope that this world has never seen before. And that's what the conflict that's happening right now in the Holy Land is really all about. Right? Benjamin says, "I'd like to add uh, the movie *The Chronicles of Riddick* to complete the list of sci-fi myth. In a, uh, in a with the uh, necromonger. bad guys are the uh, darkness, and Vin Diesel is the uh, is the hero." Yeah, the uh, wasn't there a sequel to that or a prequel to that called *Pitch Black*? Uh, so there's lot that so science fiction has that benefit of being able to explore through the allegory of the darkness and demons, and they can they can um, you can do more fantastical and um and in some ways more terrifying um expressions. Of of that the um, the essential struggle of light against dark and the and the the forces of darkness the mechanical um, the forces of mechanical nature that are trying to eradicate our free will and take us over and control us <clears throat> and make us just like clockwork um, or, you know, puppets are like like clockwork automatons, right? We've also um, referenced Alien. We've talked about it before. But the xenomorph from Alien, um, who was designed by H.R. Giger. And we've talked about Giger's work before. Giger dedicated his entire artistic career to the visual exploration of the biomechanical nature of the subconscious mind. Because Giger somehow found a way to blend uh, mechanicity and biology. And, sh- and in that way, he's, his uh, terrifying, nightmarish, horrific, but in a strange way, very beautiful depictions of mechanical nature encapsulate the essence of mechanical nature. And there's that scene that we've shared with you uh, of Ash uh, in Alien when he's talking about how he admires the alien and why he admires the alien. He says it's the perfect organism and its structural perfection is matched only by its hostility. And that's present in all of Giger's work. There's this, this design element that comes into play. There's a structural perfection to this biomechanical, mechanistic horror show that he's presenting. And he embodied all of that in the xenomorph, and then Ridley Scott brought it to life on screen. And it's one of the most truly terrifying um, depictions of the uh, descent into the, into the subconscious mind, the the, the descent into Hades to face, into the labyrinth, to face the the demon, the creature, the terror, the Medusa awaiting us. And of course, it's Ripley who ends up the one who's finally facing one-on-one. Of course, she's she's a woman. And if you recall, her only weapon is a flamethrower. All of that, all of that has profound significance. And films like Riddick, and others like it uh, pay homage to Alien, who, who, which is the granddaddy of the modern uh, of the modern sci-fi horror genre. Alien really um, established it. Not sure if I would call Alien an epic, though. Not sure it qualifies as an epic. It's high art. It's very esoteric. But I'm just not sure that it, it's, um, we can go so far as to call it epic, even though it's got some sw- sweeping vistas and it's got a very, obviously it's in space and everything else and they land on the planet and there's the engineers. And so maybe it does borderline. Anyway, you guys, you guys would decide. <clears throat> Benjamin Raphael says, if the War Measures Act happens, then there could be another lockdown and then UBI and uh, then digital currencies. It seems like this is a well organized plan all along. Uh, To us, it's pretty plain as day. um, Jennifer Allred says, Castaway has been a huge inspiration to me. The first time I watched it, I only saw it from an entertainment perspective. But after facing some serious struggles where circumstances were completely out of my control, that movie came alive to me. My favorite part is at the end of the movie where he is talking to his friend about his struggle on the island, of uh, I not even having control over the way he died, and then a uh, feeling came over him like a warm blanket, and he knew he had to survive. So he... dot dot dot. I don't know, Jennifer, if you had more to say there, and it just got cut off. I don't know if you can go back and uh recapture and cut and paste and repost the rest of your your uh, your comment um castaway is is good it's it's is it is it epic it might not be an epic but it's but it's um it's definitely falls into the man versus nature category and that can be epic you can see it as an epic struggle one man versus the elements versus the island versus being alone his own madness right remember wilson remember what happens when he loses wilson or when he thinks he's lost wilson so there's there's a the the solitude of it there's there's the magnitude of that situation the lost on a desert island there are intimate moments and there are there are smaller moments, but it does have a grandiose quality to it. Castaway does. And maybe in part it has that because of the way it opens and the way it begins with the, you know, the, the plane crash and everything else. But um, if we want to speak about uh, Tom Hanks films, our favorite Tom Hanks film, and and that and it really is an epic. Is of course Forrest Gump. For us, Forrest Gump is uh, is uh, Robert Zemeckis' masterpiece. Between that and um, uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, uh, but Forrest Gump is is the uh, masterpiece, And there's those. There's just those scenes, like the scene. after the uh the hurricane and when they're on the when they're just on the bayou him and lieutenant dang and lieutenant dan you know they, they had just gone they've just gone through the hurricane and uh and well actually it's a couple scenes later but it's they, they they had gone through the hurricane and if you remember the scene lieutenant dan is, is is up in the crow's nest And he's yelling and screaming at God. He's like, it's it's a showdown. It's you and me. You will never sink this boat. Right? And he's taking out all his anger and all his frustration. Um, And then a few scenes later, the sun's going down on the bayou, this beautiful sunset. And and Lieutenant Dan, he looks at Forrest and says, Forrest, he says, I never thanked you for saving my life. And he, and he picks himself up out of his wheelchair, up onto the deck, and he tosses himself over the railing into the water. And, and, and we see him doing a backstroke into the sunset. And we hear Forrest Gump, his voice over saying, you know, I think Lieutenant Dan had finally made his peace with God. And it's just this beautiful, beautiful moment this incredible journey for a character um this this arc and it's just there are just so many moments like that in forrest gump that that are just you know um plus it's an epic sweeping tale of one man's life uh uh Jennifer says, she did find the rest of that message. She says, so he did just that, did what he had to survive. And then one day, the tide brought in a sail and he made it off the island. But now that he is back home and found his wife got reburied, he has lost her all over again. But he knows what he has to do. He has to do what he, what he can do to survive, because who knows what tomorrow's tide will bring in. It's a beautiful analogy of when we feel like life is entirely against us and there is no chance of surviving. We can trust that if we hang in there. Even? Maybe. Uh, Let's see. Stuart says, uh, Kingdom of conscience or nothing at all? Angels versus demons don't mix. I choose God. Light can't be extinguished by dark- darkness. And Muggaboo22 says, I don't know who said this, maybe you. 90% of movies are, are like fast food, easily available with zero substance to it. It's a lot of what we get today in so-called entertainment is that. It's fast food. It's junk food. It's like a lot of what's on, you know, the streaming services, it's content, it's filler. Right? It's filler. It fills time, it fills space, and it fills our mind. And what it fills our mind with, generally speaking, is not very good, it's not very nutritious, it doesn't feed the soul. We've talked about this, we have a live stream, well, months back, if not last year, talking about feed your soul. Jennifer completes her thought. She says, eventually, what we truly need will show up to get us on our true path. The way an opportunity will reveal itself in its own way and time. And she says, sorry, I can't tell what parts of my comment aren't showing up. Usually the last parts. So there might be a limit to how long comments that you can uh, write. So if you wanna write something really long, it's better to just like chop it up into little bits and say like part one of three, part two of three, part three of three. I don't know. Cause you're on Facebook, right? I don't know why it's doing that or if it's StreamYards that limits the, uh, how long comments can be. So we can't tell you because we, we generally speaking don't leave comments. So we don't know. <laughs> um, But coming back to what you're saying here at the end, it's about, Having faith and trust in our divine mother. And that everything happens for a reason. And that if we're thrown into a situation, uh, we live by the adage ours is not to reason why, ours is but to do or die. And to do or die means to be or not to be. And to fulfill our task to serve. Our innermost being, and our Divine Mother will furnish us furnish us with with all we need to perform that duty, including all of our tests, our trials, and ordeals. So, if we put our faith and trust in our Divine Mother, that's putting our faith and trust in God. Same thing, and putting our faith and trust in the guidance of our innermost being in the traversing of those obstacles. The overcoming of those obstacles and the triumph of the Spirit, because it's that Spirit inside of us which wants to be born in us and through us into the world, through our actions, and through our interactions, and through our overcoming all the tests, trials, and ordeals that our Divine Mother sets out for us. Because that's exactly what we need for that triumphant spirit to to be with us and work through us. Because without that triumphant spirit, we cannot overcome those obstacles. So the obstacles are there to, to encourage us and to give us the reason and to give us the means, the way. To dig deep within ourselves and to call forth on that triumphant spirit so that we can conquer the obstacles that we face. And it's our Divine Mother, Divine, Divine Mother Columbia. She holds the law in her left hand and she holds the flaming torch of Lucifer, the light bringer, in her right hand, illuminating us, shedding light, illuminating us to all the obstacles and tests and ordeals and the causes of those ordeals that we have to overcome within ourselves to become that hero, that triumphant hero, and make of our life an epic, heroic journey. One which ends with a triumphant victory for the human spirit, our inner spirit. The innermost and the innermost of innermosts, the Logos, the Cosmic Christ which we call aluks, all light, God light, the fire of fire, the light of lights, and the being of beings. We're going to try to back up because there was another one here. Mugabu says, in the movie Kingdom of Heaven, I disagree with the character Balian when he refuses to marry the princess. Uh, they, they would be husband of Sibylla, was a criminal, and his earlier death could have been could have been prevented. The wood okay, sorry. Um so when he refuses to marry the princess, the would-be husband of Sibylla was a criminal, and his earlier death could have been prevented. We're not sure exactly what you mean by that. We don't, we're not sure what you mean by the would-be husband of Sibylla. When he refuses to marry the princess, the would-be husband of Sibylla was a criminal and earlier death could have prevented. We're not sure what you're trying to say, Magabu. It doesn't, it doesn't ring true. It doesn't make sense to us. Maybe you can clarify that. Magabu says, many deaths... Probably I am not a perfect knight like Balian. (laughs) Uh, And Muggaboo also says, not a big fan of the Wachowski brothers who are now the Wachowski sisters, but V for Vendetta and the first Matrix were great films. Uh, Indeed. And yeah, V for Vendetta is another good one. Uh, Did you you see Cloud Atlas? Because that was also done by the Wachowskis that also has its i would it was mixed i think because many people who read the book felt that the book was much better but we never read the book so we only saw the film and we thought the film was 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 was, was fairly good it was it wasn't matrix levels good but it was it was good jennifer says and uh, and it's fair to say that cloud atlas is another epic i mean it is another epic it's an epic of a different kind, but it's an epic of souls, you know, over lifetimes, right? So, Jennifer Oliver says, Your live streams have been a huge strength to me in learning to trust my divine mother and give everything I have to her. Thank you. You're most welcome, Jennifer. That's why we're here. It's why we do these live streams. Because all of us have the potential to make of our life an epic. And if the modern films coming out no longer inspire you then no longer are a source of inspiration if they're no longer expressions of the triumphant Holy Spirit as it expresses through the human soul the human spirit then turn to the classics turn to the epics that you grew up with you know go to the used DVD store you know, get them on physical media, so you will always have them to watch. So you don't have to rely on streaming services, or you don't have to rely on television to replay them for you. You will, you will have them, so that when you feel low, or feel weak, or feel defeated, or feel downtrodden, and you need some source of inspiration, you need a uh, uh, to 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 be taken on a vicarious. Uh, taken on a heroic journey and experience vicariously through uh, an epic hero, doing epic things in an epic world of an epic scale and scope, transforming the destiny of the universe of which he is a part, whether it's historically or fantastically or you know, a, a, a galaxy far, far away, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The true epic speaks to the universal constant and the universal connecting source that is at the foundation of all of us. Which is the which is that fiery, uh, living, breathing spirit of the logos that burns within our heart and and expresses through what we. Experience and called the the human spirit, the triumphant human spirit, and that's what the great epics show us. Even the tragic ones, even the ones that show tragic heroes and show us the redemption or 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 can teach us something of the dangers of the path and what to look out for, what not to fall for, not to fall into, like the pillars of the great Awakening that are the subject of the book that are that is about to be released. so, Um, So, thank you, Jennifer, for sharing that. Thank you for sharing that and reminding all of us that that's why you are here. And that's why we are here. We are here for you. Because we are in the climax of this humanity. We are in its Kali Yuga. And, you know, you would be hard pressed to find anything more epic than the struggles that this humanity is about to face and go through. And perhaps you have experienced the same magnitude of struggles in microcosm in your own life. And perhaps you're facing those struggles now. And to rise to the challenge and meet those struggles, it's the same The same Christic force is burning in the hearts of everyone and is intensifying all the expressions of light and dark. It's like turning up the heat under the pot of simmering water and slowly coming to a roaring boil. And if you're experiencing that in your life in microcosm, be prepared. For that to be reflected in macrocosm. And just as there's only one path to salvation in microcosm, there's only one path to salvation for this humanity in in macrocosm. And each and every hero has to walk that path for themselves. But that's why we are here to help those individuals. Individuals like yourself and the individuals who are not here watching this right now. And we will do our best to reach them in different ways as best we can. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, this book is about to come out. And this book is only the beginning, right? We've got so much more that we need to do. So, but thank you, Jennifer, for sharing that because it's our pleasure and our privilege. Mugabu 22 says, I meant to say the one who marries Sibylla who then became king of Jerusalem was a criminal and should have been imprisoned earlier. Ah, yes. Okay, all right. And he says, if Balian would have married Sibylla, a war could have been prevented, perhaps. But he would have ended up a murderer. And remember what he replies to Sibylla. He says, "Do you think I'm like Gee? That I would sell my soul?" And that's when she says, "She says one day." You will realize that sometimes we have to do a little evil to do a greater good. But remember what uh, Tyrael said to him earlier when um, when uh, uh, Balian says, No, it's a kingdom of conscience or nothing. Right? And uh, he says, uh, Tyrael says, um, um, He says, would it, would it be so hard to. Uh, to to kill Ghi and and marry Sibilla, would it be that? Would it be that bad? Would it be that hard? And balian says, no, it's a kingdom of conscience, or it's nothing. And tia says, ah, yeah, you are your father's son, right? And earlier in the film, he says, what did your father tell you? Your father's dead. He goes, oh, you know, I said that's that's you know that's terrible news. It could have come at a better time. couldn't Couldn't come at a could have come at a better time. He says, what What did your father tell you? Uh, what What are your duties as as a um, duties and and Balian's response to that was, "I am to be a good knight." <laughs> and uh, and uh, he replies, "Well, I hope we can accommodate and hope all of Jerusalem can accommodate such a rarity as a perfect knight." So And he says that with such bitter irony that it's like, you know, a perfect knight are uh, few and far between in Jerusalem." And Guy represents that. And guy is the personification of that guy and uh, Guy's sidekick, the uh, uh, Châtignot, right? Um, the, the, the the red-haired uh, uh, knight, um, I can't remember his, his first name, but it's Châtignot, right? The one who goes and does all the dirty work and causes and actually ends up causing the war. Benjamin says, now we can purchase movies on YouTube. But movies i I have uh love for I buy on blu ray haha <laughs> um about buying movies on uh on YouTube, you can buy them on YouTube, but uh you don't actually own them if you read the uh if you read the uh, license agreement if you read the the agreement on the movies that you buy, you're actually just renting them you're 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 buying you're buying a virtual version of it. You can't download it and save it to disk, as far as I know. So, if one day YouTube servers go down or they decide to remove that film from the library, you won't own it anymore. But double check your your uh, film your film ownership agreements with YouTube because it's in the terms and conditions. If you carefully look through it or look it up on the internet, because there's other sites that, that that explain and describe the legal The legal ramifications of buying uh, stuff digitally to the best of my knowledge uh, no digital license you're buying a digital license and because you're buying a digital license that license can be revoked you're not actually buying the film you're buying the right to watch the film whenever you want but google uh, youtube google or the parent company whatever Alphabet, whatever the hell it is, uh, the parent company reserves the right to revoke your access to that license, and they reserve the right to uh, no longer carry that film on their servers. They reserve the right to restrict your access to that film, which this license that they sold you supposedly gives you access to it. It only gives you access to it as long as they, they say it does. And uh, you can double check this uh, with various different online legal opinions as well uh, on YouTube and elsewhere. They'll explain that um, uh, movies that you buy from online sources, unless you have the physical disc in hand, you don't actually own the movie. And even, even in the physical disc, you know you don't actually own that movie. You own the right to used to play that film only for personal use. So you can't actually take that disc and go into the park and set up a projector and a screen and invite all of your neighbors, like into your backyard or whatever, and do a movie night and have 30 people come and watch your Blu-ray. If you do that, you're in violation of the ownership agreement and the license which was sold to you when they sold you that physical media. Now that's very hard for them to police, right? But that's technically all you're doing is you're you're buying that license for personal use. So this uh, this whole you know media stuff. Um, yeah, Benjamin says I oh, will go back to buying movies on Blu-ray. You're better off, of course. But uh, the other problem with that, of course, is you know Blu-ray or DVD. Well, I mean, it depends if you can stomach the uh the lower uh, resolution that's up to you that's that's but uh not everything comes out on blu-ray and um and dvds are getting harder and harder to find but you can find them in used dvd stores as well if you can get good copies and, and so on um we had far more dvds than we do anymore we sold a bunch of them um there was a bunch of films that we just didn't watch anymore we had bought them on impulse uh when we were more of an avid collector of DVDs but we only kept um the ones that really mattered to us and the ones we 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 rewatch regularly so we're we're getting up on the uh 2 hour and 45 minute mark <clears throat> which means that uh this this live stream is getting into epic territory um does anyone have any more questions or comments That you want to share about the topic today do you have any questions about the film uh killers of the flower moon or anything at all um please feel free to ask i'll give you a couple uh, minute or two to uh if you want to type something if not just say no thanks or bye-bye or thank you or whatever you want to say and then that'll give us an indication that uh, we're ready to sign off for the day As an update, uh, we think we've mentioned to you the uh, update on the book is that we've been assigned a new project manager, we have a new editing team, there was a catastrophic breakdown in communication with the previous project manager and that editing team. And the real problem was, the person who started working on our book that had and uh, edited it for uh, a month, they went on holiday, and they handed the project over to somebody else. And they started from the beginning because they didn't communicate properly to them. And the, the new person didn't, wasn't able to receive instructions uh, that we were make, making very clear to the project manager. The project manager wasn't able to communicate things. So hopefully now things have gotten back on track, but we'll see when we get the next draft from the publisher, we'll see what the next draft looks like. And then we'll know better by then what the timeline's gonna be. So hopefully things are moving. In the right direction and uh, we'll have hopefully also we'll have more another update and more information to share with you next week um but one of the things i think we we said about this delay is that sometimes delays work in our favor and um we mentioned we should have mentioned that imagine had we had released the book in mid-october According to our original plan. imagine had we had done that. and then two days later, Hamas attacked Israel. Imagine that what, what would have happened to any any attempts of us to make inroads with uh, media, with YouTube influencers, with like or on social media like our book, would have been completely lost in the noise in the post middle east attack in the post middle east you know what's happening now and all the political intrigue and all the speculation and all this that and the other thing and the i stand with this and i stand with that right everybody is preoccupied now and worried about that and that seems to be everybody's concern about the existential uh its existential nature of humanity right so nobody right now is, in, is particularly interested in picking up a 400-page book uh, talking about, you know, AI and conspiracy and, and woke and new age, right? So maybe we need, maybe we need uh, things to settle down and, and normalize a little bit more before we introduce the book. Um, <clears throat> and maybe, maybe we need to write a few paragraphs and add it to the epilogue of the book and kind of like make it an update saying in the final stages of the editing and publishing of this book, this new conflict erupted uh, in the Middle East. And, and we would be remiss if we didn't say a few things about that. Right. So, you know, we'll see. But that's but that's the update that we're able to give you so far. And we'll see. We'll, hopefully we'll have more to say next week. Um. Mugaboo 22 says, in the epic story of my life, at this moment, I'm going through trials and tests. At times, they seem overwhelming. And he says, I appreciate your work. It helps guide me in this dark world. Individuals like you are rare in this age. Well, again, we thank you for that sentiment. Uh, we are happy to be here for you. We're happy that we can be a source of guidance, a source of strength, um, a source of information but hopefully also a source of inspiration for you to turn within and seek out that inner light that inner strength inside of you because no matter what you're facing no matter how overwhelming it can seem at times remember none of us are ever saddled with a test a trial or an, an ordeal that is greater than our capacity to overcome however the caveat is it is not the mortal vessel and the rational mind. It is not the ego who has the capacity to overcome it. It is our inner source of strength and light and love and truth. It is our innermost being that has the ability and the capacity to guide us in the overcoming Because the obstacles themselves were put there by our own Divine Mother. They're there for us, capital U. They're there for us, the self, as a servant of the big self, the self with the big S. Right? So always keep that in mind. Remember your Divine Mother. When you're doing your self-observation, you're observing yourself, you're observing your mind, your heart, your body. Remember your Divine Mother. Thank her. Be grateful for all your tests and trials and ordeals and all your blessings and all the serendipity that shows up in your life. She is the one orchestrating all that. And all of this will help you face those challenges. And and as overwhelming as they may seem, just keep telling yourself. Just keep praying. Go within and pray. Show me the way. Guide me. Tell me what to do and I will do it. And if you receive the answer, if the way shows up, if the guidance or the direction, no matter what, in whatever form it shows up, heed the call because the living, breathing Word of God is all around us, not just within us. And sometimes we can receive guidance and wisdom that, that again, is being, it's coming from our innermost being and it's orchestrated via our Divine Mother to show up in the world Somehow, and we've told this story how many times. We've received guidance from God, from Alux, in a deodorant ad on the subway. We've seen, we've received it uh, carved into a concrete curb at the side of the road. There's we there's always opportunity. The universe is speaking to us all the time. We just have to have the eyes to see and the ears to hear it. And know that we are never forsaken. Know that we are never alone. So remember yourself, remember your divine mother, and keep an eye out, one eye in and one eye out. Um, Remain conscious and open to receive the guidance and the help and the strength to make those overwhelming challenges shrink. Right? Because the thing about an epic is. Okay the, the thing is is not to shrink the epic the thing is is to bring your epic higher self your true potential your strength and your light that spirit of triumphant human humanity that potential within you that that, that divine guidance okay into the world you make you bigger you rise to the challenge you grow and as you grow in the law of relativity if the if the thing seems overwhelming then, then bring the triumphant human spirit to bear on it, and you grow, and as you grow, the thing seems to shrink. Benjamin says, We are fortunate to have witnessed the golden age of filmmaking and music. What will the next generation experience? Will they share our passion for the arts? That's a good question, Benjamin. It's a very good question. and. Um, uh, They may, their passion for this stuff, if you can call it that, it's going to be at a different level and it's not a higher level. It's going to be at a lower level, All right? Look at the way certain people, how, quote, passionate they are about their gangster rap. And, um, yeah, we think that, we think it's enough said about that. So, but no, they won't. None of what is being made today is going to survive or going to last into future generations as classics, right? Even if by some miracle, somehow, some gangster rap survives the end of the Kali Yuga and makes it into, you know, the golden age, uh, yeah, people will marvel at it as oh my God, people actually listen to this, people like this. And any remnants of the civilization that have given themselves back to mechanical nature, the devolving, the ones that are on a devolving arc that are becoming more savage and more primal. And they're they're off, they moved into the mountains and into the forest and into the jungles. Well, they're gonna have their drum and they're gonna be dancing around, right? Like they're dancing around the fire to the beat of a drum. And that's pretty much what rap music is. Right, only it's digital drums, it's drum kits, right? Magaboo says, uh, "Yeah, I appreciate your work. It helps uh, guide me in this dark world. Individuals like you are rare in this age." And uh, Benjamin says, "Had a great time. Very good conversation about movies. Thank you, Atlas. You're very welcome, Benjamin." Uh, listen, anyone have anything else to comment or add or ask? We'll give you a couple more uh, minute or two. If not, leave us a Nice goodbye or whatever. And then we'll know that uh, you guys are ready to uh, call it a day. Um, oh, incidentally, we are, we might clip part of this live stream into a um, separate video, or we might just record a separate video on this, uh, on this topic. Killers, you know, we've written a script, like we've written a script that could be both a blog post or a video we're just not sure um if we're going to get around to it or not maybe tomorrow and we'll, we'll we'll see what happens but a lot of people have been talking about this movie and we think it's important to get the message out there that that um you know uh this film is a tepid offering at best from some someone like scorsese and uh, and it's a uh, and again as we you know not to retread old ground again over and over again, be the beat a dead horse or anything, but it's a failure as an epic. And it's not the it's not the grand epic that that the Native Americans deserve. It's not the story that Native Americans deserve to be told. Right? We're not sure what that story is precisely in terms of, you know, we, we, and maybe it's not our place to, uh, to say, but on the other hand, we, we know Epic when we see it and we know an Epic wannabe that's, that's not when we see it. And, uh, if you ask us, uh, you know, a film like *Apocalypto* by Mel Gibson uh, comes much closer to the type of epic storytelling and the epic journey, which that that and the and the fall uh, of the grand civilizations of the Americas, and then. You know the how the remnants of those civilizations fared when the europeans arrived there's a there is a grand epic to be told there and no one has no one has has stepped up to the plate to tell that story in the true grandiosity and the magnitude the 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 that it deserves to be told we've, you know, we've seen films about the fall of this empire and the fall of that empire. And, and, you know, and we've seen films about the dark ages in Europe and this and that, and the other thing and so on and so forth. But we really, outside of apocalypto and, and last of the Mohicans and, you know, and then a whole bunch of really, you know, bad spaghetti Westerns where, uh, where native Americans were really just target practice. They were just target dummies and and you know they were they were just used as 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 uh cardboard cutout villains for the cowboys to go and and go and shoot and so on so you know even even something like dances with wolves it's again it's a it's a story of a white savior right it's a it's a white savior uh story um so perhaps that epic will be told one day. But perhaps not. And really, and maybe it's not up to a white person to tell that story. The question is, is that are there are there talented, and passionate, and motivated and connected and resourceful individuals from those communities with the, the knowledge and the commitment and the dedication and devotion required to bring that epic to life and show it to the world and show it to their own people to help their younger generations comprehend just where do we come from and 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 what happened to us and not from a perspective of victimhood not not from the, that perspective just from the perspective of of Wanting to be truthful and wanting to, again, uh, do justice to that epic journey of a people's, right? Benjamin says, "Um, thank you for today's excellent live stream, sir. We've learned a lot in today's discussion. Mugabu says, you know, I understand there are all sorts of depraved music, but who pushes this filth in the airwaves? What are the reasons to push trash as art? it's the forces of mechanical nature. It's the greater weakening of humanity, that's the reason. It's entropy. Because when you reduce music to the mechanical, you know, primal beating, beating of the heart and then filthy lyrics, um, animalistic, lustful, desirous materialistic have you ever seen these videos these so-called music videos of gangster rap of the bling bling and the and the and the, the clothes and the cars and everything it's just it's it's all who pushes this filth all who are possessed by and beholden to the forces of mechanical nature it's the black lodge it's ego that works for mechanical nature and this we're, we're witnessing the collapse of global civilization this is what our book is about without focusing on things like you know rap music or whatever so with, because doing so being a white man in today's world we can't come out and openly say that or state that write that in a book without getting cancelled as being racist understand so and we have no experience of that right so we we write from a point place of self-evident experiential knowledge the life that we were presented with our own heroic journey our own epic journey of 50 years that brought us this far so we write about what we know you have to write about what you know and so the elements of the great awakening that we can write about we write about but we write about them in such a way that people can start making the cross connections. I say, if it's true, you know, what's, what's true for the goose, it's true for the gander, right? If this is the pattern over here and in all these verticals, this is the pattern it's clear as day. Well, what about elsewhere? And you said, Oh, and you look over here and you look, Oh my God, it's the same pattern. The same thing's happening over here. The same thing's happening over there. The same thing's happening in culture. The same thing happening in music. The same thing's happen, right? But let the reader make that leap and that discovery for themselves instead of, you know, me spoon-feeding them everything and then getting canceled by the woke mob because I said something I shouldn't have, right? Because I stepped on the wrong toes. But that's the answer to your question: as to who's pushing that filth. It's it's the forces of mechanical nature that are, the, and the forces of entropy that are bringing about the demise of this humanity, the great awakening. Right. So yeah, it's all it's all going to be in our book, spelled out. Okay, everyone, at the three hour mark, thank you for joining us today. Uh, thank you for uh, uh, indulging us in this uh rather personal uh live stream today because as you can tell we're very passionate about the subject of high art and specifically epic filmmaking um and it was a dis- disappointment for us to experience this latest uh, offering by Scorsese and and we just needed to We just needed to share our uh, frustration, is not the right word, but the, the, our, lamentably, our insights into our experience. And, and, and like all of you recognize how sad it is, right? But, but as it's another sign, like the writing is on the wall, it's just another, another indicator, another indication of the great awakening of humanity. And we have to be cognizant of that. We have to accept and allow for old age, the withering, the breaking down of things. This is just the way it goes. The sooner we accept it, the sooner we can make peace with it. The sooner we can be, um, we can be balanced and focus on the things that we can make a difference about, right? And that's all in here. So thank you all. Uh, We hope to see you again next week. In the meantime, take care of yourselves. Take care of those you love. uh, Take care of your innermost beings. Intention and mission for you in life. And take care of your thoughts and your emotions your sensations, your impressions. Observe them, transform them. Remember your Divine Mother. Um, Do your pranayama, do your meditation, do your mantra, do whatever practices that help you strengthen that connection and expand the bandwidth between you and your innermost epic hero. and Bring more of that triumphant Holy Spirit into the world as practical, meaningful, impactful expressions of the human spirit that we all have within us, that we all have the potential to be. And on that note, to all of you, one and all, thank you. God bless. I'll see you next week. And until then, in peace. Take care, everyone.